to sense that our church family was praying for us, and so uh, we just want to say uh, thank you for uh, all the prayers that you uh, gave to us um, and for us. Also, uh, I just want to say Asante also for all the gifts and cards that you sent to our two girls. Um, it was such a gift uh, to them, and we only had one night uh, in which when we called, they kind of cried on the phone and were like, um, Dad, you know, Mom, we, we miss you. All the other time it was like, you want to talk to the other one? Um, I'm done. Because uh, they were opening all your gifts. So uh, we're grateful for that. In fact, uh, our dining room table um, is filled with all kinds of gifts and cards that you guys gave to our kids. And my sister-in-law uh, spent the night with us last night. And uh, she was like, what's all this? And I kind of told her, and she's like, wow. And then she said this. She said, you know, the church is at its best when the church treats people like that. And I was just thinking, I'm so glad and, uh, to be a part of this church family. And I hope not just for our family, but other families. When you see a need, send a card, do something to encourage them, uh, to show them uh, their, your love for them. Uh, finally, I just want to say uh, thank you, too, for the offering that you guys uh, gave uh, a couple weeks ago for our Soda Pop Sunday. Uh, we raised $1,863. And uh, and I was talking to uh, the Infant Rescue Mission where that money uh, will go to, uh, and they said it was the largest uh, Soda Pop Sunday that they've ever received from any church. So I just want to I want to thank you guys uh, for doing that. Well, hey, let's uh, pray, and then we'll jump right into our uh, series on David. Let's pray. Asante, we thank you, God, for all that you give to our lives. And I realize, God, that as I've been in Kenya the last couple of weeks, God, that no matter where people live, they all go through different struggles. And our people here this morning, God, who for some of them, life is going along great, and for some of them, God, they're, they're hurting right now. And uh, I just pray that you would show them right now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you're a compassionate God, that you love them, and I pray, God, as, as we receive that compassion this morning, that you would elevate our ability to uh, be compassionate to the people around us. So we pray right now that just as your presence has been felt already in Africa and in Asia, that uh, right now in Muncie, Indiana, in the Jar Community Church, that your Holy Spirit, God, would meet with us and we would recognize you in our presence. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us. For your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are some things in life that really need no explanation. I mean, uh, they're just kind of uh, simply, they kind of simply speak for themselves. You don't need an explanation. For instance, um, Chuck here. Do you know why he wears a baseball cap all the time? Any guesses? Some of you know. Male pattern baldness, okay? All of you who experience that, we're grateful that you're here, okay? But there's no explanation. And I would have him actually demonstrate for us where this is at. But when he stands up and turns around, you'll see it. Um, but that's an easy one. You know, that's an easy explanation. Uh, you don't have to give much reason for it. But seriously, there are a lot of things in life, folks, that just don't need explanations. They simply speak for themselves. And I think compassion is one of those things. Uh, over 15 years ago, my wife Jennifer and I met uh, a couple, Dave and Jennifer Bell. And they were an uh, upper-middle-class family kind of living the American dream. They started their own company uh, called Cutting Edge Wire, EDM. It's uh, right near the whole 
kind of thoroughfare that has UPS and FedEx and all of that over on Cowan Road. And they had built their own business uh, from the bottom up. And he was kind of ahead uh, of the learning curve on knowing how to uh, build different dyes and tools uh, for specialized uh, automotive parts. And um, they immediately started making a lot of money. In fact, uh, it was about a $300,000 business. And there were only two employees, uh, Dave, who was a tool and die maker, and Jennifer, who took care of all the bookkeeping and accounting. And uh, the ability to run their own business, and when the machines would run 24 hours a day, they could go off and be with their kids and do little league with them and uh, be a part of different school events. And whenever the church called them uh, to be a part of something, they were able to give of themselves and uh, to give freely because uh, they could meet needs. And uh, most of all, this uh, wealth provided them the opportunity to give money for any cause for Christ that kind of came down uh, their path. And whenever there was a cause or there was like a, a need that Dave and Jennifer would see, their compassionate heart that was filled by Jesus would just give generously of their resources. They served the poor. They worked with the youth in our church and several churches uh, in our community. They uh, developed camping experiences for needy kids. They went to the short-term mission field for different things, and they would put on these huge evangelistic rock concerts uh, for kids to come and to get connected. And uh, when I looked at two people in the church that I was raised in, uh, Dave and Jennifer Bell would be the two people who were the most committed because of their compassionate heart for people. You know, we've been in a series about King David, the guy that we've been talking about all summer. And I think David had a compassionate heart like that. The only problem is we don't see the fullness of his compassion for most of the first uh, two books of uh, Samuel because there are so many achievements that he has. And we talked about a few of those. If you remember, David was the guy who uh, took... Uh, five smooth stones and a slingshot and went to this great big nine-foot-tall giant and he took him on and he actually hit him in the head and then killed him when all of the Philistines uh, thought that there was no way that Goliath could ever be taken out. And even though all of Israel and all the army was worried and fearful that they were going to become slaves, David believed not in this giant and his power, but he believed in the power of a giant God, and he took him out. And all of Israel applauded him in the midst of this. And he was a skilled warrior, and every time he would go out to a war or a battle, it was like, if David's leading us, we don't have a problem. He's got our back. He will take care of us. And we hear about all the battles and all the wars that he won. And we're told how everyone just kind of delighted in everything. He had like the Midas touch, if you remember that commercial. You know, everything he touched just seemed to work. Then we learn that he was an honorable person. And rather than taking out the king who was before him, King Saul, that he actually waited until it was his turn. And then he became king. But what he inherited was like, you know, the mess in Europe right now. I mean, it was financially messed up, and it was dysfunctional and disorderly and unhealthy. And yet, David came and he brought it all back together. And he began to rule with justice. And story after story, we hear impressive things that David accomplishes. But maybe one of the most powerful stories that we kind of miss, if we're not careful, happens in 2 Samuel chapter 9 because it's a story of just remarkable compassion. And there's a commentary on all of David's things and there's a commentary uh, that's focused on his compassion. If you would, I'd like for you to follow along with me on the screen as we Look at this story of compassion that's in 2 Samuel 9, verse 1. 
Now, just to give you some context here, David has just ended a successful reorganization of the entire nation of Israel. He then immediately turns his attention to compassion. And in verse 1, he says, Is there anyone left in the house of Saul who was my enemy to whom I can show kindness for the sake of my friend Jonathan, who I loved like a brother? So they brought one of Saul's servants before David. His name was Ziba. And this man explains to David that in answer to his question that there was someone says, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. The servant goes on to explain where the young man was, and David immediately had him brought to his presence. Verse 6 goes on to say, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? At that point, David turns his attention to the servant and he gives instructions to him. And says, all of Saul's land shall be restored to him, and you and your sons and servants will work the land in order to provide income for him. And then it goes on to say, Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So without commentary, the passage simply lays out the story for us and just kind of lets compassion speak for itself. And David teaches us in this story some amazing things about how a compassionate heart works. And the first thing David shows us is that compassion is personal. Compassion is personal. You know, back in verse 6, you notice that Mephibosheth, when he first sees David... He bows down and takes upon himself the form of a servant. And David doesn't pause for even a second to soak this in. His first and immediate response is to say his name, Mephibosheth. And in that one word reaction, David restores dignity to a human being that has forgotten that he's a human being. I mean, remember Mephibosheth referred to himself as a dead dog. I mean, when Saul and Jonathan died, just a few chapters before, the whole country goes into chaos. The whole country goes into fear. The followers of Saul were scared. And in all this turmoil, Mephibosheth was a five-year-old boy who had just lost his grandfather who had just lost his father. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 4 that the nurse that was taking care of Mephibosheth grabbed him because she knew as heir to the king that his life would be in danger. And as she was fleeing the country, she tripped and she dropped Mephibosheth. This stumble caused him to fall and be crippled in both of his feet for the rest of his life. So this young boy, at age five, after losing his grandfather and father, goes into hiding and has to keep his identity a secret. And over the years, he becomes alone and forgotten. How does someone get to the point where they consider themselves a dead dog? I mean, just think about that. You've got to get pretty low before uh, that takes place. I mean, what kind of pain, what kind of hurt, what kind of isolation does a person have to experience before they finally get to that point where they're like, I'm just as low as a dead dog? I mean, they have to feel the sense of being overlooked, of being forgotten. 
and there's no response. At the age of nine, uh, Francis had both his mom and dad killed. And he was a son of a total of 13 children. And when your parents die in Eldoret, Kenya, you are totally abandoned. Grandma and Grandpa have already died. Aunts and uncles already have their own kids, and they can't even take care of them, and so they can't take care of you. All of your parents' friends are trying to just make it themselves, so they can't take care of you either. And so Francis is totally abandoned, and he's forgotten, and he's alone at the age of nine. And at the age of nine, if you don't have anywhere else to go in Eldoret, you become what they call street boys, and you simply live on the streets. And Francis begged, and he stole, and he did whatever he could to survive. But the only problem was, was when you're at that age, you don't have this sense of maybe being an adult and being able to make it to do something. You just feel totally abandoned and lonely, and it's just a survival skill. And to try to ease the numbness that he felt in his heart, he tried to numb it by starting to huff. First he sniffed and huffed glue, then he went to propane, and finally he went to kerosene. And the pain in his life was so great that the only thing that he knew to do was to keep going back to huffing because that would numb all the pain that was in his life. This went on for years and years and years as uh, Francis just totally felt like nobody wanted him. No one wanted anything to do with him. He was abandoned. And the reality is nobody did want anything to do with him. But one day there was a Christian man from Germany named Andrew. And uh, he found Francis out in the street. And he had a, a teenage Christian rescue center. And when he found him, he talked to him enough to try to convince him to come back to the center. And Francis uh, was telling me that the first time that he got ready to head back to the center, he got about halfway there, and he just couldn't believe that anyone would want him without some strings attached. And so he jumped out of the car, and he went back to the streets. But Andrew was so persistent that he would not let Francis alone. And he was persistent, just like God is persistent to us, constantly pursuing, trying to build a relationship with us. And Andrew, that's what he wanted, to build a relationship with Francis so that he could help him then build a relationship with God. And finally, the second time that he picked Francis up, Francis went all the way to the teenage youth center and there he was introduced to the one who knows him best and loves him most and to the one who never abandons him. And he met Jesus Christ. Now Francis relapsed a couple of times, but each time that he did, Andrew continued to pursue him with persistency. And he called out to his name, and he said, I'll never forget this. He called out to my name and he said, Francis... And he said it was like the first time, just like with Mephibosheth, that someone called out to my name because they genuinely loved me. And I looked up the name Francis. That word means free man. And it was like the, for the first time in his life that he felt like he was a free teenage man because there was someone who cared for him, just like the God that he told him about, who was Jesus. Well, finally, Francis graduates from uh, this teenage center, and uh, he becomes a counselor. And he begins then to reach out and care for uh, different street boys, and he was able to get hundreds of them off the street and into uh, this center. And eventually, as he began to be a grown man, he thought, there's a way that I can maybe gain more wealth so that I can give more away. And so he uh, bought his first car, and he started a taxi business. And 10, uh, actually 13 days ago, 
uh, Jennifer and I met Francis for the first time, and there's a picture uh, up here. And the transformation of Francis's life is a miracle of God, of God reaching down, pursuing someone, being persistent enough to pull them out of the streets. And Francis continues to show God's love and compassion to the people that he encounters, especially those street boys in El Dorette. And no longer does Francis see himself as a dead dog, but he sees himself as a prized son of the Most High God. And you know, the transformation that Francis experienced is exactly what Mephibosheth had experienced as well. I mean, just think of the dignity that must have been restored to him when the king of all of Israel looks out and calls him by name. And later on in 2 Samuel 19, Mephibosheth says these words to David. My Lord the king is like an angel of God. You gave your servant a place among those who sat at your table. You know, when God's presence enters a person's life, and then they experience the compassion of one other person, it does amazing things to a person's spirit. And Mephibosheth now, he no longer sees himself as a dead dog and having his head down all the time, but he sees himself as the person who was called by the king. I mean, just think about that. That your name means nothing. And then all of a sudden, your name means something because the king says something about you. And that's what God does. He calls you by name. And it's a story, really, this story of David and Mephibosheth, it's a story of a picture of God's love for us. He calls us by name. Friends, God's compassion for us turns into what we've referred to as a personal relationship with God. You see, when Francis was on the streets of El Dorette as a nine-year-old, God was very distant and far away. But all of a sudden, when God became personal through the compassion of another person, it became a personal relationship with this God. And we see that with David. All of a sudden, David has this personal relationship with God, and God turns to him, and then he says to him these words. He says, David is a man after my own heart. He says, we're not distant. You've got my heart in you. We're connected. We're personal. And then Jesus carries that on into the New Testament. And John, when he says these words, he says, I will no longer call you a servant, but I will call you my friend. Folks, the one who knows you best and the one who uh, loves you most, he is the one who calls you by name. Whatever your name is right now, God calls that name. Because he knew that name before you were ever born, and he's constantly pursuing you to show you his love. And then for you to take that love and pursue other people to show them his love. And he loves you. And he calls you his friend. I mean, just think about that. The, the second head of the Trinity calls you his friend. That God incarnate, God in flesh, came to earth and he said, I don't call you servants or subservants, I call you my friend. And just like Mephibosheth, you and I have been called by the king. And we can be transformed just like he was if we turn to him. The second thing that I think uh, we learn in this chapter that David teaches us is this, is that compassion moves toward a person. Compassion is personal. And secondly, compassion moves toward a person. You know, folks, you can't do compassion from a distance. It just doesn't work that way. You can't, you know, kind of have a hands-off to people. But if you're going to be a compassionate person, you have to be active and connected. You can't be remote. You can't be uh, removed. That's called pity or, or guilt for somebody. But if you're compassionate, 
You are actively involved in that person's life. Compassion is a heart that is so deeply moved by God that you can't help but show His love and mercy and grace and compassion to the people around you. Compassion cannot just sit still. And the turmoil that compassion stirs up inside us is only relieved. We only get relief from this sense of wanting to do something when we actually do it. I mean, we can talk all the time. But talk's cheap, right? But when you get involved and you become compassionate, that's when you move. And that's when God moves. And David asks in this passage, in that first verse, he says, is there anyone left in Jonathan's family that I can love? And then he hears from Saul's servants that there is one, but he's crippled. And David says, I don't care. Where is he? Now, folks, what you've got to understand is that in this particular culture, if you're the king, you don't talk to crippled people. Unfortunately, it's kind of like what happened in the 90s. When AIDS, in the 80s, when AIDS first hit in the 80s and 90s, people had this stigma and they would not want to touch or connect with people. And while I was in Kenya, folks, I walked down an entire second level in which every single person in that place had AIDS and malaria. And the death stare of them looking, just knowing that their time was not very long at all. And I couldn't just sit back there and go, oh, I don't want to. I had to touch. I had to be active to where they were. And in that culture of David's time, folks, if you were just a regular person, you didn't deal with the crippled. But if you were the king, you definitely didn't lower yourself to the crippled, the useless. They were considered worthless, broken, damaged goods. But David the king moves towards this man. And he shows amazing compassion to him. He says, you know what? Your your grandfather, Saul, had all of this, and so I'm going to give you all of it back to you. He just like cashes in about a third of the kingdom, and he says, it's all yours, crippled man. And he arranges for him to have servants. And the servants of the 15 sons and 20 more servants to work the land and to take care of every need. Folks, That is amazing compassion. And he says, you're not just going to be out there in that field somewhere. You're going to eat at my table. You are welcome at the king's table. And then the passage shares these very powerful words in 2 Samuel 9, verse 11. David says, you will always, think about that, always, you will always, Eat at the king's table like one of my sons. You know, David's compassion was generous. I mean, it was extravagant. But it was also totally uncalculated. I mean, he doesn't even know Mephibosheth. He could have been a real jerk. I mean, we all know somebody that's a real jerk. I mean, there really wasn't much in this for David. There wasn't a payback expected. It wasn't some 50-50 kind of deal. This was without borders. His compassion wasn't just sentimental either. This had real land. This had income. This had food attached to it. And David's passion, compassion for this young man so much reflects the compassion that we see Jesus show. Look at Matthew 9, verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So his compassion moves him to action. And then he turns his attention to his followers. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Meaning there's a lot of stuff to be done, but there, there is very few people doing it. And then he goes one step further, and he finishes that verse by saying, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. That, my friends, is us. 
That's you and me. We are those workers. We are the community of compassion that Jesus is saying must respond to crowds in need, must respond to people that are hurting, that are alone, that are isolated, that are weary. And I think of the three places that we influence people the most. Where we live, where we work, and where we play. Where is it that you can show compassion versus just being maybe overwhelmed by the needs of so many people? Let's look to the example of King David. He chose one person. He picked one person. David didn't say, I must meet the needs of every single needy person in the country. He chose one person. And he knew very well what compassion could do, but he also knew what it couldn't do. His compassion could never restore Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, to him. He could never cure the lameness that this young man would be afflicted with for the rest of his life. But he could reach out in compassion and he could make his life different. And he could make him stop seeing himself as a dead dog. That is the power of compassion. You know, David showed us one more thing about compassion in this passage. And actually it's where the passage actually starts. But it's so powerful that I thought we were going to end on this. Because it's the basis for everything in this entire story. Compassion comes out of a love relationship. Compassion comes out of a love relationship. That is the fuel on which compassion runs. Anything less is not compassion. The love between David and his friend Jonathan was legendary. Now the Bible tells us that, after they, that they met right after David's encounter with Goliath. And the Bible says right after that encounter, in 1 Samuel 18, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him just like he loved himself. The way Jonathan loved David was remarkable. He had a fierce loyalty to David that even superseded his loyalty to his father Saul, who was king. And there's a number of times out of this loyalty that Jonathan warned David of the king, Saul's plans to have him killed. I mean, he risked his life to defend David. Saul was so angry once he threw a spear at his son, tried to kill him. Jonathan always spoke well of David in front of his father. Jonathan loved David in spite of the outcome of who would be king. Because you've got to see, Jonathan was next in line to be the king. Now Samuel had gotten word from the Lord to go anoint David king while Saul was still king. So it was unclear at this point which one of these young men would become king. So Jonathan says, what is most important? This love, this relationship between you and I and might get lost because of this whole uneasiness thing about the, about the throne? This outcome that we know nothing about right now? And so that which is most important does not get lost. We need to protect this with a covenant. So in 1 Samuel 20, the two men swore their friendship to each other. And not just to each other, but to their descendants. To the children that they would have. They said, even when we are dead and gone, the love relationship that we have shared is so strong, it's so powerful, that it's going to be able to reach out and connect to our children. And to our children's children. And after they sealed this covenant, the Bible tells us that they parted and that Jonathan wept. And then it says David wept even more. <coughs> Sorry. I was weeping. I was just so full of 
And not long after this covenant, in 2 Samuel 1, David gets the news that Saul and Jonathan have been killed in battle. At some point you need to take the time to read this because this is a very moving tribute to a broken heart over the death of a loved one. And David mourns. I mean, he mourns greatly. And in this mourning, he addresses the mountains. It says in 2 Samuel 21, it says, You might as well not have dew on your hills or rain that comes down. Then he addresses the fields. And he says, It's no point in having crops. So David is basically telling the earth that it might as well stop spinning. Because his grief is so deep. So great is the loss of who he calls in that chapter, Jonathan, my friend. And it's in this relationship that fuels David's compassion for Mephibosheth. To whom can I show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So this relationship was so connected that even when Jonathan died, David said, I am so full of love for this relationship that I have got to find somebody to show compassion to. You know, a heart full of compassion, it simply overflows. Several months ago, my uh, oldest daughter, Jordan, who's five, and and I were... um, eating chocolate chip cookies. And if you're eating chocolate chip cookies, what is the one thing that you have to eat with them? Milk. Right, exactly. Everybody knows you've got to have some milk. And so uh, this was before Jordan kind of knew how to pour milk by herself. And so uh, I was trying to show her how to pour milk, and she said, no, Daddy, I want to do it on my own. I was like, okay. And so she pours the milk... And I wanted to teach her how she could take the milk from the counter to the table. The only problem was when she filled the milk, she filled it all the way to the top of the glass because she wanted it full. And then when her little hands grabbed onto the cup and she proceeded to take it to the table, about half of it made it to the table and the other half just spilled out all over onto the floor. And Jordan was there and she was so proud of herself because she didn't see the spill on the floor. She just saw that she actually poured the milk and got it there, but she didn't see the spill. And you know, when I noticed that on that day, and as I thought about that this week, I thought about that's the way compassion works. You see, folks, if you get compassionate enough and you fill it all the way to the top of the glass... You have the opportunity every once in a while in which that compassion just pours out. It spills out into the lives of the people around you. And lives become impacted and changed for eternity when we have compassion like that. In the summer of uh, 1999, God began to work in the heart of our uh, friends Dave and Jennifer. And no longer did he simply want them to have compassion for the people that were around them and people who were connected to the church and the ability to give generously of their finances to the causes of Christ. But he wanted them to show compassion on the mission field. And soon as uh, God began to work in their hearts and kind of soften them, their eyes became fixed on the mission field and they sold their entire business and uh, sold their house. They were debt-free, and now they were just going to be indebted to Jesus Christ Himself. And for the next six years, they began to serve on the mission field in Mexico, in India, in Zimbabwe, in Ghana, in Vietnam. But finally, in 2005, God grabbed a hold of them and said, I want you to go to... Nairobi, Kenya, and I want you to stay there. And for the last seven years, that's where they've lived and they've worked. And they have truly reached out with compassion to the least, the lost of the world. 
The mission that God has called them to is an infant rescue mission outside of Nairobi, Kenya, called Mali Palmaisin, a place of life. And weekly, they receive these little infants that have been abandoned. And they find them in places like doorsteps and just out on the road. They're dropped off at the police station. They found a couple little kids in latrines and porta potties left there to die by themselves. And God has given them a heart of compassion to care for small infants. And they can't care for two million uh, orphans that are abandoned in Kenya, but they care for right now about seven. Here's Abigail, abandoned. Here's Luke. Abandoned. Philip. Here's Rebecca. Here's Jacob. Here's Caleb. And then finally, here's Nathan. And three weeks ago, they found Nathan who had been dropped off in the middle of a busy road at 2 a.m. in the morning. And the driver saw this and heard this baby crying, and so they picked the baby up and they took the baby to the police station, and then the police brought him to the Infant Mission Rescue Center. And then the bells just take care of him. And most of the kids, when they're tested, they're HIV positive. Think about that. You begin your life with AIDS because of what has happened with your parents. And folks, nobody wants these kids. That's why they're just left. But you know who wants them? God wants them. And there is not a child that becomes abandoned by his parents or her parents that God says, you are not abandoned by me. You know, I read the Bible a lot. I do things here to try to connect with you guys. But every once in a while, you don't understand the power of a scripture until you go to a place in which that's the only thing that people can rely on. And I was thinking of this passage in Hebrews chapter 13. And I've read this many times. And it says this, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And God uses David and Jennifer to just pick up these infants who have been abandoned and say, you are not abandoned by God. And literally, They become the hands and feet of Jesus who reach out and care and pick them up and take care of them. And they're loved by a compassionate God. And I'm so grateful that God has kind of aligned my heart in such a way that I never want to be a part of a church, regardless of how big we get and how much we grow, that we walk through our lives and we forget about the global world that's outside there. I love Muncie. I love Delaware County. I'm going to die here. But as I go through this path, folks, I don't want to walk it in such a way that I become immune to those who are being abandoned in this world. And God has given us such a wonderful church family with freedoms and income and love and joy and compassion that we can partner and give much of it away to those who are the lost, the least, and the lonely. And I think what would be so cool, think about this, that if we put up, put up a picture of the, one of the kids that have been abandoned, Wouldn't it be so great? Because with the $500 that we do, folks, we get to change that word from abandoned to adopted. 
That they become adopted by God and they become adopted by a family who can care for them and their needs. That's the kind of church, folks, that Jesus died for and that I want to be a part of. Wow. What a powerful story. Reminds me of the words of Jesus in John 13. It says, by this everybody is going to know that you're a follower of me if you love one another. And that's what it really all boils down to. Paul made the same point in Corinthians when he goes through all the spiritual gifts and he says these are the great things to grow the church and strengthen it. Then he runs into Corinthians 13 and says none of it means anything unless it's motivated by love. So Jesus was boiling it all down in that one verse to say what's going to catch people's attention? What will speak for itself and let people know that you are a follower of Christ is not how impressive you are or not how big you are, but how big your heart is and how much you love. Jesus was letting us in on a little secret that this kind of love that fuels compassion, that's personal, that moves toward a person, that comes out of a love relationship is an absolutely unstoppable force. It can't be stopped. It's the force that transformed Mephibosheth from seeing himself as a dead dog to seeing himself as the son of a king. Colossians 3 verse 12 sums it up beautifully. You and I together are God's chosen people. Then Paul says, here is the reason you should clothe yourself with compassion. Because you are wholly set apart and dearly loved. Friends, we are called to show compassion. You may not have to travel to another country, but make no mistake about it. You are being called to be compassionate to people. You have the power in your words. You have the power in your actions to change the way someone views themselves. You get the chance to be the miracle in someone's life. You get to be the answer to someone's prayer.
You know, I mentioned last week, and Chris mentioned it again, that we as a church saved the lives of three children. Well, after the service last week, some other people whose cups were overflowing with compassion stepped up and they donated more. So now we've raised enough to save four lives. Four less children will die now because of your compassion. And I've thought about this all week. I mean, these are little children. Little children that laugh. And they cry. And they smile. That is the transforming power of compassion. Let's stand for closing prayer. Will the prayer team come forward? Anybody that needs prayer after the service? Dear God, we just thank you for showing us the transforming power that comes with compassion. Allow us to reach out like David did where we live, work, or play. Allow us to be put in a position to help someone possibly change the way that they view themselves. Allow us also, like Mephibosheth, to accept your invitation to sit at your table. I'm sure that this story has impacted some people here today and maybe from a different angle. I'm sure there's people in here who view themselves as lost, as unworthy to sit at your table, maybe alone, maybe forgotten. And God, I pray that each person here today will view themselves the way that you do, the way that you see us, as your masterpiece, your masterpiece that you cherish, that you call friend. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome week. Know you're always loved in this place. And I don't see my brokenness.